Hey, I'm Joseph. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I'm Joseph. And I'm Steve. We're exploring a simple question. Why do people do what they do? Welcome to Working Title. All right. Well, the way we always start things off is just simply um, seeing how you respond to the question that we all encounter it, whether it's an awkward social gathering or on an airplane or something where someone that we don't know just simply asks us the question, what we do. How do you uh, typically respond to, to that question? Yeah, I typically, I typically say that I teach theology. And sometimes, depending on the setting, I might say I teach religion just so I don't have those follow-up questions about what is theology. <laughs> <laughs> so the I'm I'm a bit of an introvert, and so if I'm if I'm caught out in public on the airplane or on the train, yeah, I usually say I teach theology or I teach religion. Is that uh, you? You choose that over over writing or or pastoring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, it's hard for me to think of myself as a pastor. I mean, I I grew up wanting to be a pastor. That's the way I would have put it then. And my wife and I planted a church after we graduated from college. But at this point in my life, even though I am a teaching pastor and do a lot of work that I suppose is pastoral, I don't I don't really identify as a pastor. I don't think of myself in those terms. Sure. So, so if you don't mind, maybe take us, um, down the path a little bit of just how you got, um, to this point then. Um, I know your background is in, you know, the Pentecostal tradition and, and Mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm curious as to how you arrived where you did based on, on that being your background. Yeah. I mean, since I was really young, I mean, five or six or seven, I, I knew at that time that I wanted to be a pastor preacher because in the world I grew up in, there were no professors or, or academics at all. I mean, there was just, you know, you were a pastor or you were an evangelist or you were a missionary. Mm -hmm. And those are really the only possibilities. And I, would say it was not until I sometime after I finished college that I really that I started to realize that I I wanted to pursue academics and and professional theological study as ministry as as my calling so you know I and I think I've I've been involved in both worlds all of that time so for 20 years or so both pastoring in one capacity or another and teaching in the university or seminary. And I think, I think I will always do both, but I just personally, for whatever reason, I I tend to identify myself as a theologian who does work in the church rather than the other way around. Yeah. How, How did you, how did you end up in, in academics period? I mean, what, what was the desire, the draw to go to college? What was that whole path for you? Yeah, so sometime I, I flunked out of college um, <laughs> after I went the first year. Um, I did fine 
except that I didn't attend class enough. And so I failed my courses because of poor attendance <laughs> and I dropped out and ended up traveling with this evangelist. And this was not part of the plan originally, but I became a research assistant for him, essentially researching sermons for him and so on. And I realized that I had a ton of questions that none of the people in my circles had answers for, and they didn't even know where to send me to find those answers. So when I went back to school, I, I was really eager to learn, really eager to to start to grapple with some of the problems I sensed. And then I, um, I think it still was a few years before I realized that I wanted to actually, you know, do PhD work and, and become a professional theologian. But I, I think, you know, I, I had those theological questions all along. And do you remember the, what some of those early questions were? Yeah, I mean, there were a swarm of them. A lot of them were around really silly things, right? So <laughs> the churches I grew up in, they were Pentecostal, but they were also holiness churches, and they were, you know, kind of rabidly holiness. And what they meant by holiness was essentially, you know, don't drink, don't smoke, women don't cut their hair, that kind of thing. And where were you where at geographically at that point? Oklahoma, okay. middle Oklahoma, gotcha. kind, of, kind of middle of America. And the so a lot of the the questions that I had were just questions about things that seemed obviously false to me. You know, the thing, claims they were making about um, what the Bible says about these things that I could see even then. Well, something's not quite right. But when I would ask questions about them, um, the pushback would always be really hard. You know, and you know I can remember. Here's one really silly example. Um, that came to me, the you know when I was probably twelve or thirteen, the the churches I grew up in they were really strict with hairstyle, so women were not allowed to trim or cut their hair at all under any circumstances, and men had to keep a really tight cut. And I remember reading or hearing about the story of Samson, who has of course has <laughs> long hair. And just being bewildered by, wait a minute, if God doesn't want men to have long hair, if that's a sign of, you know, effeminacy and all of that, then why, why does Samson have to grow his hair out? And so ask a question like that was threatening. I mean, the response was, you don't need to be asking questions like that, and which just made me more curious, you know, made me more eager to to learn so i mean some of it early on was silly i mean but that represents but that represents the bigger picture of right that yeah. kind of environment and I, not that i was in exactly pentecostal holiness environment but in in the ag i mean it's certainly has a anti-intellectual bend to it and yeah. Yeah. any any kind of i mean before i went to college uh did not hear uh not a few times, a very a ton of times heard. Well, you just better be careful because you're going to come back. You know, you're going to lose your faith because of yeah. going to study. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and that's that's very much. I mean, when I when I got ready to go to Bible college the first time, I mean, people tried to talk me out of it you know, on those grounds. You know, that you will go and lose your faith, and of course, they weren't exactly wrong. I mean, I <laughs> I, I lost 
what they thought of his faith, right? I think I I would say now that I actually found a, a way of holding my faith meaningfully and coherently. But I did separate from those churches. They weren't wrong about that. And I think the I think they knew kind of at an instinctual level that if people ever really open themselves up to the world outside, they wouldn't come back. And yeah, they don't. (laughs) Right. Do you remember finding, like, where did you first find uh, a sense of relief when you discovered like-minded people asking similar questions? Um, I don't know if it was relief. I mean, it, it was a kind of just like deep gratitude. You know, I like the, I had a professor, she was a psychology prof, actually, but just she was a, a kind of generous mind. And I think she picked up really quickly kind of what was happening with me. And she engaged me and made it clear that, you know, there was nothing to be afraid of and that anything she could do to, to help, she would, she would do. And I think, you know, I just felt immediately you know, grateful, like indebted to these people. And and even in my Bible school experience, I mean, there were, there were some people who very much were like that, like, like she was, who were open and encouraging and even offered guidance for me. And then there were other people who resisted. I mean, even in, even in my undergraduate study, I mean, there were people who were teaching classes who were afraid of education and which is, you know, so ironic and right. Unfortunate, but, um, it's true. And I think it wasn't really, it took me years to really kind of break really entirely free of that kind of anti-intellectual pressure. Like, um, uh, some of that was getting into the academic world of Pentecostal studies. So, you know, there's a pretty rigorous, pretty vigorous, um, community of Pentecostal scholars. And it's a pretty broad space. I mean, it's pretty open and, uh, I, I think, lively community Mm -hmm. and i think it was probably only once i kind of had found my way into those conversations that i i really was able to kind of get some separation from the those pressures that i think are there even in our bible schools and universities that kind of press back against um, liberal education against you know study that would lead you to challenge or question some of what you have come to believe. What was the, what was the desire to kind of stick within the Pentecostal community with that? Was it some sort of a exploration of your childhood and to try to figure some of that out? Or was it what, what kept you in, in that way? I'm not sure exactly. I mean, I could, I think I could tell the story in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think I like to think that it was, me following the the guidance of the spirit and doing what God wanted for me. I mean, I, I hope that's what it was mm-hmm. and is. Um, I, I never really felt there was something about, I mean, I had a lot of friends, of course, as I was doing my work, a lot of friends who left their Pentecostal churches 
and became Catholic or Anglican or Lutheran. And theologically, that made a lot of sense to me. I mean, there were all kinds, all kinds of things about Pentecostal theology that I found problematic and difficult, but I never felt comfortable leaving. And I think, I think some of it was that I really appreciated some of the friendships I had made in this world and some of the uh, relationships that had formed me. And I wanted to honor those, you know, like the people at my school, my undergrad who had cared for me so well, I wanted to honor that and kind of uh, pay those debts, I guess. And I still think of myself in a lot of ways like that, that I'm, I'm really trying to, you know, if, if you think of Pentecostal tradition as a, as a big tent, I'm kind of at one of the edges of the tent, but I'm still in the tent mm-hmm. and I'm just in conversation with a lot of people who are on the outside of the tent too. And a lot of people who don't really feel comfortable at the middle of the tent. Um, and that that's, has been, has been true. I think for me as a pastor and as a teacher, uh, I think that's for whatever reason, but I, <clears throat> So some of it was that, that concern of paying the debts, honoring the relationships that I had made. And some of it was, I really, really think it's important to do theology from and for a particular tradition. And only then for the sake of the whole church. Like, I, I think one of the things you want to avoid is kind of doing theology from nowhere. Mm-hmm. And... The fact is the questions that I knew well, that I really knew I could think about clearly were Pentecostal questions, you know, so like I'm interested in theology that reaches outside of our tradition, but I understand, or at least I think I understand um, what it means to be a Pentecostal and what Pentecostal beliefs are and what Pentecostal practices are. So I know how to think about those things kind of coherently. And so some of it is that too. It's just a, it's what I can do. Yeah, I love that. Mike Birbiglia, the comedian, says that the the more specific your comedy is, the more universal it is. And yeah, right. Yeah, I yeah. think I think that that's uh, I think that's an extremely good point. T- can you talk a little bit about sort of the Pentecostalism that you grew up in, what that environment was like? I I, I think I have a little bit of an idea just from from knowing you and reading a lot of your stuff, but I, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear kind of how, how weird and how specific that world is. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, it, it is sheer craziness, right? So one <laughs> of the ways I describe it is it was rapidly Pentecostal, but even more rapidly holiness. And, and so, you know, we, we had church all the time. We did Sunday night service, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night. Once a month we did Friday night. And then multiple times a year we would have revivals Mm -hmm. which were every night of the week for at least two weeks (laughs) and so we were going to church all of the time right and these services were predictably unpredictable right so you the, the whole point was to get there and try to get yourself in a position spiritually for anything to happen and a lot of a lot of times craziness did happen you know so it could be really really intense a lot of preaching about hell a lot of preaching about sin um 
lots of altar calls for repentance or spirit baptism or healing. So, I mean, it was, it was really intense. In fact, when I, when I finally left there and, and went to school and moved away, um, and started going to church kind of on my own other churches that weren't a part of that, that world that I'd grown up in, it felt all, it all felt so fake to me because I was so used to the intensity of the kind of churches I'd grown up with. Um, you know, where the preachers, I mean, they didn't preach, they screamed. Yes, right? Right. I mean, it, was, it was, there was no, um, you know, it was an hour of just, well, I, I've come to call them sweaty Pentecostals. Like they went to church <laughs> and went to work, right? Like they, you left church, you look rough, right? Your, your, your hair was disheveled, your clothes were disheveled and your hair was um, all, all askew. I mean, you're, you went to church and st- stuff happened, right? And that, was the so it was an intense environment I, I was as a kid i would have nightmares about the rapture which i could recount to you now if you wanted me to absolutely uh, and um you know I, ha- I have such vivid memories of so much of that right i remember one service where the preacher had been preaching about the rapture and this woman got up and started running around the church screaming He's coming now. He's coming now. And I was probably eight or 10 and I got underneath the pew in a fetal position weeping because I was like, I mean, it was so intense, so frightening. I mean, I can still remember how overwhelming it was. And that was, you know, pretty frequent. That kind of stuff happened a lot. And, but it was all tied up with like really legalistic understanding of, the Christian life. Right. So, um, no television, um, long sleeves, always long dresses for the women. Uh, of course, no cutting their hair, no makeup, no going to the movies or going to the fair or anything like that. Um, so it was, it was all really kind of legalistic in a lot of ways. I, I experienced classical Pentecostalism, in like a 50 or 60 year time warp. So if you go back, you know, 50 years, 60 years before I was born, a lot of Pentecostal groups were like that. Um, you know, they didn't let their people go to ice cream socials or whatever. Yeah. That was my great grandparents. No, right. No, no sports, hair specific ways and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Exactly. And basically, I just grew up in one of the last outposts, outposts of that, of that kind of spirituality. Well, and what was that yeah. like to be a kid in that? Like, were you going to public schools or? or, or... No, 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 no. I had to go to a Christian school. Um, some of the kids in our church went to public school, but most did not. Um, and I didn't. I went to a, a little private school, and. It was, it, I don't know, I, I think in some ways, so there were some things that came that came out of it that, that I look back on and I'm grateful for. I mean, one is it really steeped me in um, scripture, or King James, but scripture. So, I mean, I still carry a lot of that, a lot of that with me now. Um, and it exposed me a lot to a form of the life of prayer, and it took it took religion seriously for sure. And I appreciate all that stuff, but it was, but the, the environment was really toxic in a lot of ways too. And, 
uh, I, I mean, I certainly would never take my family into it. Now, my kids and wife, I, I, I would never willingly <laughs> subject them to that. Yeah. So but, was it? But through... there were things about it that were formative for sure. Yeah. Was it through academics then that that you encountered a god of love, or or was that? Um, I, I guess did, when did you first experience God as love? And yes, yeah, so that, yeah, that's an interesting thing, and and one of the reasons that I'm convinced that there's there's no real straight line between what's happening in our churches and what's happening in the lives of the people in our churches. So the all of my life, since I was very young, I've had a very strong sense of God's love and favor. I never struggled with that. Like yeah. even in the midst of all that toxicity, that didn't trouble me. I mean, I, and, and all of my experiences were really strange. So I'll give you two examples. One, you know, of course, we're always praying to be baptized in the spirit. And I, uh, one service, I, I mean, I, again, I'm maybe 10. I mean, I'm really young and, and praying. And I fell asleep praying because the church services would last for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. And my parents, you know, picked me up, took me home, put me to bed. And then I woke up in the middle of the night with my parents sitting in my, in my room, telling me that I had awakened them because I was speaking in tongues. Wow. And they were rejoicing, excited that I, you know, I had been baptized in the spirit. And I can remember immediately feeling like, I don't know, does that count or not? Right? <laughs> like, because I was asleep, right? Like, does that, I didn't hear myself speaking in tongues. Does that really, does that really count as a valid spirit baptism? Right. And, and now I look back on it and laugh because I think there are all kinds of ways in which I'm that kind of Pentecostal where did you have spirit baptism? Absolutely. But I was asleep <laughs> and, and uh, I had to take somebody's word for it that I was speaking in tongues. And another example is around the same time in my life, I was in my room praying and I started singing this song to Mary about Jesus. And I started panicking because I didn't know what I was, why it was happening. And I didn't know, I, I couldn't tell anyone about it and I didn't tell anyone about it because I, I didn't know what they would make of the fact that I was, you know, singing to Mary. So even though I think the church that I grew up in was kind of theologically um, malformed and spiritually toxic, I don't, I don't feel like my relationship to God was shaped like that for whatever reason. That's fortunate. And yeah, oh, well, I'm, I'm grateful for it. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason it's so interesting is because, you know, as as varied and as kind of all the different things that you're doing, the things, the, the thoughts that you're having are right now, I think it's obviously, you're, it's so shaped by where you came from. And so other yeah. kids are, you know, thinking about Michael Jordan and, uh, you know, playing baseball or something, and you're in your room finding yourself praying or singing a song to Mary. It's just right. like, I, yeah. I think, uh, you know, even, even like if, if speaking in tongues, your parents are in there rejoicing, almost like a, some kind of quasi initiation, right. Or something. Yeah, like, no, I think that's right. Yeah. I think it's, I think that's really, I mean, obviously there's a ton of weirdness that comes with it, but it, it is also 
really interesting and it is who you are, whether you like it or not, you know? Yeah. And, and I think, I think the primary thing it gave me is a kind of an appreciation for, um, the ways in which spirituality can, can in this really complicated way be sincere and faithful in some ways, um, certainly sincere and at the same time be really toxic and unhelpful, you know, and that I, I don't, I don't ever want to lose that sense of, you know, somehow all of that can be tangled up together. It's, it's not going to be one or the other, you know, Jesus parable about the wheat and the tares. I mean, I think that's, I think that's my story. And I really think that's everybody's story one way or another. And it, and it gives you a sort of openness to the wildness of God. I mean, I, I remember those services where, uh, you know, somebody just starts screaming at the top of their lungs in the middle of service or the, the oldest lady jumps up and rips a coat off and starts sprinting through the sanctuary. It's like all that stuff is burned into your mind. And it it is for better or for worse, at least it's bodily. It's a, it's a real thing. It's not stoic. It's this very full, full of energy, full of life kind of thing. Even if it's later on, it's something that you uh, walk away from. It still is something that opens you maybe to the possibility that there's more than just quiet reflection or something. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And and I'm I'm bent. I mean, like I said already, I'm I'm pretty introverted. Um, tend to be, um, you know, kind of reflective and pensive and all that. So, being raised in that kind of environment, I think um, I'm I'm grateful for for the ways in which it kind of forced my eyes open to um, to that kind of bodiliness, right? The the ways in which you're you're literally throwing yourself down before God and and opening your heart up. And so that, yeah, that's stuff that I still cherish about our tradition, about my experience narrowly, but our tradition broadly. What's the, uh, what's been kind of the trend as far as the, the background of the students that you've that have been coming in that your current uh, batch of students. I mean, are you encountering students with the similar type of background or is, is the culture shifted? Uh, yeah, I, I don't, from... yeah, I would say I haven't had more than a handful of students in my entire career who've had that, who've had that background. I've had a few, but not many. I've had, you know, a lot of students who have some version of that, you know, some version of they went to church a lot or, they went to a church that was pretty legalistic, but um, I think they're much more likely to have grown up in, you know, a Pentecostalism where a lot of that stuff has been, was react, you know, people were reacting against it. Right. So, um, you know, my, most of my students wouldn't have, you know, I can still remember, you know, in the churches I, I was a part of, you know, the, the theological debates that were going on were things about, speaking in tongues and sanctification and divorce and remarriage and the King James translation, you know, so my students, very few of them have ever even heard of those issues. You know, they don't come from churches where people are arguing about doctrines of sanctification or um, whether or not you have to read the King James Bible. Um, Some of them come from 
you know, religiously intense settings, but not those particular issues. No. Um, and a lot of them, a lot of my students now, um, I can't really see much that their church experience has marked them much at all. You know, I think, I think my church experience was so intense and so prevalent in my life that it kind of dominated my whole consciousness, right? right? Like everything, everything I was doing was overshadowed by church. That's, I, that's not true for most of my students. So going back to what you mentioned earlier about, you know, the, you know, the benefit of doing theology out of a particular tradition is that also kind of going by the wayside when it comes to, you know, the student's mentality and the student's approach? Is it tougher to, um, you know, whether it might not be the King James versus other translations now, but are there still particulars that are being discussed, but they're just different than what they used to be? Mm, I don't think so. I mean, I think, I think at least it's, it it depends somewhat. So I occasionally do have students, you know, who come from churches where there there are strong doctrinal emphases. I had a student last semester who had grown up in a church where they he kind of had inerrancy drilled into him, a particular version of inerrancy, um, and but it wasn't tied to a translation or anything. I, I've had students who um, have had some version of Spirit baptism, you know, tongues as initial evidence as something that's emphasized for them. But really, overwhelmingly, no. I mean, I think most students have a very vague sense of any any doctrine. And I think I think that's because most of the churches in, in the world that I operate in, they don't really have doctrinal emphases. They don't really um, – the the church experience is much more – experiential than that and is kind of built for people's tastes you know so it's kind of built for uh, to be accessible and enjoyable for people and and because of that i I don't think that they feel pressured i mean the the environment i grew up in was aggressive right and it was in fact the church this is another weird detail um, when I went to Bible school and I first started hearing preachers from the larger Pentecostal community and not from the little group I had grown up with, I, I realized pretty quickly that these people want to grow their churches. Like they want large churches because the people I had grown up with, and that surprised me because the people I had grown up with, they wanted small churches. And they, they thought if you had more than 50 people, it's because you were, compromising like you were clearly doing something wrong otherwise people would leave right so um and that's just not the kind of world my students are from like that's just not you know so yeah but i i i think i i do quite a bit of speaking in churches and i often get invited into pentecostal communities where there are older people who remember what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. yeah so, so uh, you know, that's a different experience. So you talk about sort of self-identifying more as an academic, more as a professor than, than the church, but obviously the church is this huge part of your ministry, your calling, your vocation or whatever. What, what, how, like talk about the, the church plant and then sort of 
why you still feel this need to uh, to devote time and effort and attention to that? Well, I mean, I don't think Christian theology is not an end in itself. I mean, you do Christian theology for the sake of the church. So you can't really, you shouldn't really be cut off from the ministry of a local church if you're going to do Christian theology, in my opinion. So, I mean, I'm convinced of that, and I try to live by that. I think planning the church happened because um, there was a community of people who kind of didn't fit in any of the churches that were available and didn't want to not go to church. And um, like I said, at the edge of the tent, you know, some people outside the tent, some people inside. And they, they asked me if Julie and I would, would start something because they thought we could kind of make room for them. And, and that's what we did. I mean, that's why we, why we started it. Um, as a, as a kind of a border town, I think, uh, and for whatever reason, I often encounter these people. I get a lot of conversations with people who are on their way out of Pentecostalism and they are, you know, stopping by my, by my office to talk with me before they leave for good. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of conversations with the people who are on their way into it or interested in coming into it. And that's what that church plant turned out to be, at least for the first years. You know, a lot of people who were kind of burned out, uh, disgusted, embittered by their Pentecostal experience, looking for some alternatives. And, you know, we were trying to build a, a space like that. So what are you currently... What are you currently wrestling with? Is there, you know, is there specific elements of your theology that you are maybe rethinking or um, currently wrestling wrestling with based on maybe new conversation partners uh, or things like that? Yeah, this you're going to have to cut me off because I'm going to go on for a long time. <laughs> I, really, really kind of grieving and wrestling with issues of race and Pentecostal spirituality. I, I think there's a, a, the Pentecostalism that shaped me and that is, has shaped much of the tradition in this part of the world um, is actually deeply indebted to, to black uh, spirituality. And has not owned that debt well and has not um, honored that tradition well. And there are all kinds of ways in which a lot of our practices and beliefs um, are kind of charged with racial prejudice and ideology. So I, I, I'm thinking about that a lot. I just, just finished a paper on the relationship between racism and the doctrine of speaking in tongues, for instance, mm. that, um, you know, is, you know, where my heart and mind have been on this topic for a while. I feel similarly about um, sex and gender issues. I mean, I think Pentecostals are in a, in a unique position, but we've not, where we've, and I think fully rightly affirmed 
women in ministry, at least in many ways, but we haven't done that very well theologically. And in some ways we haven't let that carry through um, in terms of our polity and denominational and ministerial stru- structures. So I, I have, I have a deep concern for that as well. I think we've, we're not making good judgments about, I'm going to be careful. I don't want to talk too broadly here, but when I say we Pentecostals in the broader Pentecostal tradition, I, I don't think we're thinking theologically very well about issues of sex and gender and so on. Yeah. And I am also really interested in the ways in which Pentecostals need to kind of rethink um, mission and the I mean, Pentecostals have always been, well, not always, but from very early on have been a missionary kind of people. And that is a, that's a history that, again, is the wheat and the tares, right? There's so much about that that's a wonderful, beautiful history, but there's also so much about that that's, you know, tied up with colonialism and uh, villainizing other people. So like Amos Young has done some work about how Pentecostals tend to engage other people's assuming that they're encountering the demonic in the other persons, you know, Mm -hmm. in, in other people's. And no doubt there is evil in the world and we're coming up against it. But when you frame the world in terms of we're the spirit baptized ones and they're the demonized ones, you know, it's a, it's for one thing, it's a, a, an expression of that racist racial prejudice that I talked about before. And it's also, yeah, go ahead. Well, you sent me that paper and you're, you're linking. Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. You're linking the the view of spirit baptism in a sort of elitist way, like a classist sort of system that stratifies people. And I, I experienced that for sure that it is the right. special thing that only special people get. Exactly. And I, I'm what I'm arguing in the paper. And I think you see this in the history of missions is that, that it's a colonialist mindset and it's sustained. It's the same mindset that sustains racist practice and, and feeling. And we've got to break that with, I mean, while affirming what's right about our tradition, we have to break that, right? Like the, to to separate one from the other the best we can and uh, I'll name one more thing then I'll stop I mean I'm also writing right now working right now on a doctrine of evil where I I really want to there's just some distinctions I think we need to make I think that have gotten lost along the way and I I'm trying to begin to think through some of them one being just as a teaser being the I think there's a distinction between the satanic and the demonic. So I think the demonic is destructive and dark and threatening. And the satanic is the opposite of that. It's inviting. It's deceitful. It's cunning. It's, you know, he's an angel of light Mm -hmm. and that certain kinds of spirituality gear themselves up to fight the demonic not realizing how that opens them up to the satanic, which is marked not by destructive behaviors, but by judgmental ones. So, you know, and I think we've seen this in our churches over and over again, where we think we're fighting against evil. And what we really mean is we're fighting against, 
you know, the demonic. We're fighting against destructive powers of addiction, say. Mm-hmm. Not realizing the ways in which Satan is using our zeal against those things to open us up to self-righteousness and judgmentalism and, and that where we become, um, we have a sense of superiority. And I think that has killed our churches in the culture wars over and over again, because, you know, we're, we're fighting on one front, not realizing we're being attacked from another side. And so I, I want to write about, I write about that too. So if you have an idea, like one of my favorite things that, that you'll do sometimes is throw out theses, uh, on, uh, on Twitter and just pose some kind of a question. And so let's say you have that idea for, uh, you know, that obviously comes from a ton of study, but you, it dawns on you the idea of racism and, uh, and tongue speech and linking yeah. those two things. How, how do you, you know, how do you see that sort of a thing play out in how it comes to fruition? Is it just something that rolls around in your head for a long time? Uh, or do, does it, is it just something that sparks your interest that then are you working towards something every time you have a thought like that or like a into yeah, the form no. of a paper or is it just kind of <laughs> random? Yeah. My wife, if she heard this question, she would laugh and make fun of me. No, I, I'm not nearly intentional enough about all that. Like I, I kind of let that stuff happen to me as it happens to me and, mm-hmm. you know, I'll write it down. Um, but I kind of follow my urges in terms of writing and I'm not, I'm not very dis, I don't write in some kind of disciplined schedule, you know? And so when I, that, that connection between racism and tongues hit me one day in class when I was lecturing years ago. And I talked about it for years before I tried to write it down. But that wasn't because I was, you know, being disciplined and waiting. It was just it just didn't I, come out. It, it didn't come out, right? Yeah. Exactly. And then, and then it did. And and so, I think, um, I, yeah. So I, I think it's more just kind of, it's a lot like the I, I kind of dabble in painting, just for fun, and it's the same way there. Like I don't I don't plan to paint or draw. It's just if something's fighting to get out, you know, I try to make time to let it out. Yeah, I love that. I, I, uh, you mentioned Amos Young. He's got his huge book, and he's written about this a lot. Uh, I think it's it's called Theology of Down Syndrome or something like that. Yeah, Theology and Down Syndrome. Yeah. Um, and uh, one of your uh, people that are on your faculty, uh, Stephen Fecky, has talked about this a lot mm-hmm. too because of his son. Yeah. Yeah. You, yeah, you mentioned exactly. sort of the, the reason that sparked is you mentioned sort of your your brain's makeup, um, and it, it it led me to think of this and sort of going back to your background where any kind of mental illness is classified as demonic. You need to cast that stuff out. I I, I don't know where I saw it, but I think you've written somewhere that you've struggled with mental illness, and so yeah. how 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 have you? kind of wrestled with that given what your background is and into places that are healthy. Yeah. Well, again, my wife would laugh. I don't know how healthy I am um, <laughs> in any, and if I hold any kind of healthy belief about it, uh, probably what day you catch me, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I won't go through the whole story, but <clears throat> I didn't, I didn't know about any of this until the last few years, but I was diagnosed two or three years ago with, 
bipolar disorder and um it's yeah it's been a challenge kind of deal with all, mostly because of trying to medicate it properly which has created a, a whole series of uh, nightmare scenarios um but i think it's a kind of new frontier for pentecostals in in terms of thinking about theologies of healing i don't I, so this is a little bit too too broad a brush but i think you'll hear what i'm saying a lot of the pentecostals and uh, that i'm a part of the world i'm a part of are kind of bible belt conservative pentecostals who also live in a larger cultural context where mental illness is stigmatized mm-hmm. yeah so they don't often bring awareness to mental illness in their preaching or prayer i think just because they wouldn't do it in their lives because of that larger cultural setting right like they're just you know to be midwestern or southern um, conservative middle-class people that you just don't talk about those things right and you and you don't um you don't know how to how to talk about them if you were to try and so i think um, pentecostals haven't haven't even begun to i mean obviously amos has written that book and and Fedke has done some stuff, but I mean, as a movement, we haven't really begun to to grapple with that. Um, I, and I, I, th- I hope we do. I, I think um, I. You know, I, it's hard for me to talk about. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, and and if, don't feel any need to say more. I know it's a sensitive thing, so don't feel any need to say more than you want to. But how? I, I guess. How have you come to look at that sort of thing in light of faith? Is it is it? I mean, it's obviously so different from just something that you need to pray through or have faith to believe that God will heal you from or whatever. Because yeah, maybe exactly. even there wasn't language to even say you need to be healed from it because you can't even name it. You're not allowed to name it. And right. so, it is it is it a thorn in the flesh that God's given you? Is it like what are the, how are yeah. you viewing it? Yeah, I, I, in this, I mean. The honest answer is I don't know, and it changes. I've got a lot of thoughts about it, but nothing ever that that feels satisfying. I mean, mm-hmm. I I think the you know it's given me such a kind of insider view, quite literally, of what how suicide can happen and how how lives can kind of come apart. You know, where people can just break down. I mean, when you're sick, like I've been it puts enormous pressure not only on you, but on your family and uh, on your kids and on, you know, my students have have, had to catch some of that, you know, in, in all kinds of ways. Right. So one part of, uh, uh, I can also often have panic attacks that just come out of nowhere, seemingly completely random. And, you know, I've, I've had to miss class before, right. Cause I just couldn't, I literally couldn't lecture. Like Mm -hmm. I couldn't, um, I couldn't get, myself into the room um so it's stuff like minor stuff like that and then really dark times i mean there have been there have been those where i didn't know will i survive this or not like uh, and so i don't have any kind of you know uh i'm certainly praying for god to heal me and i i would love to be healed i don't expect to be Mm mm-hmm which I know for some people means I don't really have faith, but, right. 
that's that's of course not how faith works um but i don't i don't i don't really know what to make of it i, I i'm hesitant to I, I i say this to my students a lot that i want to be and it's probably because i'm writing this stuff on evil right now but i want to be so careful never to talk about evil in such a way that i end up justifying it mm-hmm. by appeal to what god is doing with it i do think god makes good out of what happens to us but that doesn't make what happens to us good yeah and i really want to be careful of that and so i i haven't i still haven't found a way to talk about what i'm experiencing right now well i think that'll that's be satisfying a, for me i think that that'll be an enormous i mean it's a comfort to me just to hear you even vocalize it and say i don't know what it is i mean right. you have a profound way of speaking about so many different things. I could say a topic and you could talk for four hours about it. And so for there to be something even within yourself, that's that personal, that there's not a clean explanation or some sort of, you know, cute linguistic thing that you can do to make sense of it. But it just is, it is what it is in the middle of your life. Um, Yeah. I think that will mean something to someone. Yeah. And it, it sensitized me. To, to so many things that I, that I think I knew about kind of vaguely, but I didn't really care about in the way that I should and suicide for one, but also just the way medicine and the, the kind of pharmaceutical industry works in our world. Um, so much of my problem is not just that I, I have bipolar disorder, but trying to medicate it properly and the, which can greatly, greatly exaggerate your, your symptoms problems your yeah. symptoms yeah and the because i've you know this has been a multi-year process of trying to find uh, the right medicine um i i've been i'm like the woman with the issue of blood i've seen physician after physician <laughs> and the one of after years of doing this you know I, i'm kind of breaking down with a psychiatrist saying like look i'm tired of having to guess like i need to know something i need i can't keep getting it wrong mm-hmm. and he says and he told me he said well just know that on average it takes 10 years to find the right medication for people and give them the right diagnosis That's when they have when they have bi- bipolar disorder so you're talking about from the time that they start to look for help for for whatever it is that they're suffering takes 10 years that's agonizing it is i mean and that is the damage that gets done to people in that amount of time is unreal and i mean i'm not just talking about the people themselves who are suffering it but <clears throat> their wives and husbands and kids and friends you know their churches i mean because this is happening to pastors all over the place too and so it's um yeah i mean it's something i care a lot about i don't know what to do about it or even what to say about it but yeah i think about it a lot yeah well we definitely appreciate you you sharing about that um i guess transitioning maybe into uh something a little bit you know lighter as we start to wrap things up a little bit maybe just a, a couple uh we don't call it a speed round but maybe just a few random questions just to get your to get your thoughts on um okay um so do you have, um, is there something that you could offer us that would be just simply considered maybe a guilty pleasure of yours, something that would surprise 
people that don't know you well that is an interest of yours? I love watching television and movies. So I'm really into it. It's not always guilty pleasure because I, I'm sure the television and the movies that I like is still kind of nerdy. Right. <laughs> You're not watching Kardashians. Right. What's that? You're not watching the Kardashians. Right. No, no, no. No, indeed I'm not. No. <laughs> Sorry, you choked me up with that one. <laughs> no, but I, I love, I taught a class at the seminary um, before I came here to Southeastern. I taught a class on theology and film and uh, I, I really, I love, um, I love that kind of stuff. What What are you currently watching? Are you into something uh, specifically? Yeah, so we're watching a range of things. We're just about to finish True Detective, the season three, and which is an HBO show. I'm watching a show called The Break, which is a, uh, I think it's French um, detective murder mystery kind of thing on Netflix. Um which I love like European Scandinavian um, murder mystery. Uh, like that's, uh, that's why Netflix keeps recommending them to me. <laughs> um, I'm watching a show with, uh, with my wife also on Netflix called Russian doll. And I think those are the three shows we're watching right now, but you know, Julie and I, that's kind of our, when we get time, that's what we like to do together, you know? So breaking bad and mad men and, Parks, parks and recreation, that whole a whole range of things like that that we like to watch together. Love it. You have um, how many children do you have? Three. I have three kids, and they're all fairly young. Is that right? Uh, so my daughter is fourteen, <clears throat> and my sons are ten and five. Okay, so uh, you are you are able to watch non children's Netflix at this point then. <laughs> yes i have a set it up where they have their own netflix accounts yeah and i'm able to get free of of all that exactly so um i'm always interested in people's uh morning routines do you have very specific things that you like to uh to do in the morning to kind of get you in a certain mindset and establish your day no and again i'm terribly undisciplined you know like um I, I don't get up at the same time every day and I don't do the same thing when I get up. You know, I, it's kind of, uh, um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a terrible example. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't have anything like uh, a routine I, and I, everything I do, I do in spurts, you know? So like I might go a week or two and not write anything. And then I might write, you know, two or three papers over a weekend, you know, yeah. it's just, just, it's just all random for me. That's so encouraging to me. Thank God. Thank God there are other people in the world like me. I mean, I'm sure it's not a very poor character on my part and my, my wife who is a very disciplined person. Um, I'm sure I'm constantly, constantly testing her patience, but no, no, I'm not, no, no routine for me. So, um, as a theologian, then um, not necessarily asking for specific names of people, but just in general, like as a theologian, who do you value as conversation partners, whether it's maybe uh, authors or, or lawyers or, you know, just more generic uh, categories? Mm, man, that's another big question. Uh, the, the I, I read really widely. So I, I kind of, what I value most, I think, in well, I don't want to say it like that. What I love to encounter a writer 
was talking about something in a way that is just so at an angle from in, what I've encountered before, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy um, that shift of perspective and the, so I, I read a lot. I read a lot experience kind of experimentally, right. Trying to, you know, I'll, I'll, this book might be interesting. I'll try out a few chapters of it or something. Um, so, but then I come back to a handful of theologians that I, I kind of trust to keep me like th- this, this is what I want to come back to as a, as home over and over again. And so, you know, there, and that includes, I mean, it's still a, a number of people, but that includes people like Robert Jensen. That I just wrote the book about, or right. um, Rowan Williams. That I just went to see in New York city or, Older, you know, ancient theologians like Gregory of Nyssa, Augustine, Thomas Aquinas in the Middle Ages. So, the you know, there are those people that I read a lot and I read over and over and over again. And then there are a lot of people that, you know, I'll read a paper here or a book there to just try to um, find some kind of fresh perspective or, or new language for is there, is there uh, someone new uh, that has been, you know, invited into that catalog with uh, for you? The Robert Jensen's, the Rowan Williams. Is there, is there a new addition? Hmm. Not probably not into that that circle. Not not yet. I mean, there are some people that that might make it in. I mean, I think I, I want, and I've been and I have been for a while now, kind of trying to read more black and I think some of the commitments of black theology are coming into that central kind of home for me, but not, not particularly any one author yet, at least. Um, but I'm I'm sure someone will. Sure. Um, so what, uh, I know this is an extremely broad question, um, but but what, where do you find joy, um, in in today's culture and today's climate or however you want to say it, what, what, what's your sources of joy? Well, and I think this probably has a lot to do with my illness, but that's something that uh, is, is hard for me much of the time. Um, but one of the things that I've found the, to be true for me, at least not, this is in no way a comment on anybody else, but I always feel like joy surprises me. Like, yeah, I don't know where to go to find it. Cause, and again, that may just be because of what I'm suffering, but like, I, I can't think of that if I do this, I would, it would bring joy to me, but I do find that there's a lot of joy in my life and it just, sneaks up on me somehow right like what and and that can be you know it can be sharing a good meal with friends but it also can come in times where you know it doesn't quite make sense either yeah well the the way that we sort sort of a funny transition into this but the way we end every podcast is just by asking uh is is there a time that you can think of and maybe it's a childhood thing or something but a time that you can remember laughing the hardest. It can be a church laugh. It can be, it doesn't have to be a good story. You don't have to recount it in a way that's funny, but is there a time that you can think of that was just extremely funny? Oh yeah. I can think a handful of them. 
<laughs> um, one of them was as a teenager reading through Song of Songs and trying to guess which sexual acts were being described. <laughs> so, you told me not to tell you, but I, I had to give you that example. You can edit that out if you want. Oh, no, 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 no. no. Far be it. I, I want to, I want some specifics, but I'll, I'll stop. Um, <laughs> well, I, I just really appreciate you taking the time and being so like candid. And I, I know that, you know, I've expressed this privately, but just to really appreciate your work and your voice. And there's so few people that are able to speak into the specifics of how weird the world that I came out of was. And then yeah, yeah. the blend of, uh, of what you do with, I mean, just the people that you've introduced me to and your work specifically has just been extremely important for me in the same way that Rowan Williams and those guys are in your canon. You are one of those for me. And so Thank you for what you do, and uh, please keep doing it. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. That's very kind. I'm glad we could do this. It's fun. All right. Hey, well, uh, just, real quick. Sorry, I just wanted to ask. I didn't uh, when I didn't realize that you had gone to Bangor. That's uh, I got my yeah. MTH from from Bangor. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Do you know Glenn Balfour? I don't. I know the name, but I I don't. I met, met him. That's who I did my uh, master thesis okay. through under. And Very cool. just really, it was a great experience for me. Oh, good, man. That's, yeah. that's good to hear. Yeah, it was good for me. Good experience for me, too. Oh, that's awesome. So. All right, Chris. Well, I appreciate your time, and we'll talk soon. That sounds good. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye.